Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. The early church had some big questions to answer. One of those questions was how did they know if the Gentiles were truly God's people? The Israelites had certain standards for this, but did the Gentiles need to conform? You're listening to No Small Debate by Reverend Christy Mannion. Good morning. We're coming to the end of our summer sermon series on the book of Acts and how the gospel engages the world of the first century and how it touches our world today. And this morning we turn to Acts 15, which is a record of one of the first major conflicts in the church. And we come to that text at a time when many of us have never been more aware of how badly we need the help of God's Spirit as we navigate life together. What's worth fighting about? And what isn't? Should I speak my mind or hold my peace? And how long? Oh Lord, how long will we all walk around with an ache in our chests about all the conflicted places and relationships that we that come to mind, hardly without our thinking about them. And when we look at those challenges that are right in front of us, in our families, in our city, in our church, in our schools, in our world, it's really possible for us to think that what we face today is somehow harder or more confusing or more complicated than anything that God's people have ever walked through before. And I guess something that's reassuring to me is that when we enter into this story this morning, these believers were walking through a conflict where the stakes were high and the pressure was on and things were hot. So let's listen to what the Spirit says to us through the early church. Acts 15. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch. And they were teaching the believers there, unless you're circumcised, according to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some of the other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. So the church sent them on their way, and as they traveled throughout Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed there by the church. And the apostles and the elders, to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. And then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up, And they said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and be required to keep the law of Moses. So the apostles and the elders met together to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them, brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. 
God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he had purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus, we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. And the words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and it's still read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So the apostles and the elders come together and they draft a letter, short little letter, to the churches of Antioch. They say, verses 28 and 29, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food, sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. This is the word of the Lord. Somehow Paul and Barnabas had learned to live with physical hardship and emotional whiplash. There they were back in Antioch after traveling around to the churches of modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor there. And they'd seen some high highs. They had preached in the name of Jesus, and many people had been saved, both Jewish and Gentile people. They have healed people in the name of Jesus. And they've seen low lows, too. They'd been attacked by an angry mob and left for dead. They'd been run out of town when people rejected their message. And after they came back to Antioch, they shared with the believers there how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, Acts 14 says. God had first cracked that door open through the message of Peter to Cornelius. And now through Paul and Barnabas, that message is spreading and more and more people are turning to Jesus. But now, all of that good news for the Gentiles is called into question. Because now Barnabas and Paul find themselves back at their home base of Antioch, defending the very gospel they've been preaching on the road. 
A group of believers from Jerusalem, the mother church, has traveled 250 miles north to Antioch, and they're systematically teaching the people there that they have to become Jewish in order to become Christians. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you can't be saved. They taught. Luke says that this teaching brought Barnabas and Paul into sharp dispute with them. Older English versions say they had no small dissension and debate. But don't let Luke's understatement fool you. This was a big deal. If you turn over a few pages to the letter to the Galatians, the churches that Paul had started in Asia Minor, you can hear Paul's passionate voice that the good news of a crucified, resurrected Messiah should receive no alterations, no substitutions, no additions, no subtractions. Paul and Barnabas preached Jesus. Full stop. Faith in him as totally sufficient for salvation. You foolish Galatians, Paul thunders, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus was clearly portrayed as crucified. So again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you've heard? Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. We who have come to faith in Jesus 2,000 years after this particular debate read the Acts 15 decision with the end in mind. Of course, people who want to turn to Jesus don't have to become Jewish first. We're not saved by being circumcised or by keeping kosher. But the believers of Paul and Barnabas' time didn't know that's how things would go. They don't know the end of the story. They had to labor through this arduous process of listening and speaking and debating and listening again, working out their collective salvation with fear and trembling. When Barnabas and Paul dispute with the Jewish believers at Antioch and later at Jerusalem, it's not at all clear that the gospel that they have risked their lives for will come to be the gospel that's adopted and promoted by the Jerusalem church. Few debates we have today have higher stakes. For those first century believers, they were drawing boundary lines. They were trying to determine who was in and who was on the outside, looking in for time and for eternity. And because it's easy for me to be hard on the Jewish believers of the day, we have to keep in mind something about where they were coming from. Because for millennia, God's people had traveled a well-beaten path of how to become God-fearing foreigners, if you were from outside the nation of Israel. Members of other nations became members of God's covenant by doing the very things that these first century believers are talking about. Being circumcised, following the law of Moses, 
A good first century Jew knew that he wasn't supposed to look like a Gentile or sound like a Gentile or act like a Gentile because God's holy people are set apart from the Gentiles. They're Jewish, except Jesus. Jesus, who in a totally unexpected way entered human history. Jesus, who kept company with unclean people, tax collectors, sinners. Jesus, who came to bring us back to God, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Jesus, whose coming didn't establish a Jewish nation on earth as many hoped, but instead pointed and heralded this ultimate reality of God's kingdom, now and forever. The early church had to work all of this out. So on the one hand, at the council, you have the side that says, since the time of Abraham, we have seen how God works. This is how he's done it for millennia. He's brought people into the covenant through the law, through circumcision. On the other side, other hand, you have this side over here that says, in Jesus, though, in Jesus, God has done something totally new. We've seen evidence of God's Spirit come on uncircumcised Gentiles who believe in the name of Jesus. We've seen that same Spirit descend on them, just as he did on us at Pentecost. Which argument resonates more with you? History and tradition? Present experience of God's action? Thankfully for all of us who are listening and reading today, that connection to God's past action wasn't the only thing that the council considered. If tradition and history alone had directed, those of us sitting here would still be on the outside, looking in. So how did they do it? How did the dyed-in-the-wool Jewish believers and the up-and-coming Gentile church planters listen together, look together, consider together, and go forward together when it seemed like they were preaching different gospels. Yesterday in the mail, I got um, a book, a bound book of minutes from the most recent Council of Delegates for the Christian Reformed Church. It's enormous. Luke does not give us the nitty-gritty minutes of this debate. We don't know how long it went on. But there are some highlights that he pulls up for our consideration that, is, that are good for us to notice when we enter our own conflicts. Number one, we can notice that at the very beginning, neither group dismisses the other one's concerns out of hand. When Paul and Barnabas encounter um, these, this delegation from Jerusalem in Antioch, and they debate together, and they can't solve things, they don't decide to just separate and go their own ways. They ask for help. They recognize that they have a connection and even a debt to the people of God in Jerusalem, that, that they have been stewards of God's presence in the world for all of this time. And so they go together to the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem 
about the issue. Number two, they gathered together a deliberative meeting of tested and trusted leaders in the church. They walk through a process. They listen. They think. They deliberate. They have times of silence. We can imagine there was prayer and reflection involved. They rely on the testimony of the Old Testament scriptures. They recognize the Holy Spirit guiding the process. So the Pharisees bring their question before the group. Peter provides his testimony. Paul and Barnabas tell again for the third time in Acts 15 what God has done through them among the Gentiles. And James, the brother of Jesus, moves a proposed solution, a path forward. This deliberative process recognizes that no one person alone is in charge of God's church. By the Holy Spirit, Jesus is the leader of his church. Another thing that they do, they keep the message of the gospel front and center and mutual concern right at the top of their minds as they're deliberating. God, who knows the heart, Peter says, showed us that he accepted the Gentiles by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he has purified their hearts by faith. We believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus, we are saved, just as they are. So although there are distinctions and differences and ongoing things to work out between members of the church, the council argues that the Gentiles don't have to become Jews. The Jews don't have to become Gentiles. There's no longer an us and a them. In a broad way, there's just an us. People saved by grace. Purified by faith. The decision is sensitive to the interests of the two groups, though, and sensitivity to the distress of the Gentile believers who are worried, are they saved or are they not? The council determines that they can become Christians without becoming Jewish. They don't have to undergo circumcision or hold up under a law that no one else has been able to bear. They don't need to be burdened with anything more than a couple of prohibitions which are made out of sensitivity to the beliefs and convictions of the Jewish believers. The Gentiles have to refrain from habits that would turn their hearts away from the living God toward idols and cut them off from fellowship with their brothers and sisters. They're to abstain from anything associated with idolatry, meat sacrifice to idols, sexual immorality, of every sort, but especially in the context of pagan temple prostitution. Eating anything with the blood still in it, and that is it. How does the council communicate their decision to the churches? Well, again, it's not minutes. It's a tiny, tiny, five-line little letter communicating to the churches the decision of the leadership in consultation with each other and with God, 
in a unified way. The details of who said what are not there. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, the letter to the churches says. Through their deliberations, the apostles and the elders come to agree. They come to endorse this decision as both God-directed and God-honoring and something, something that they can all agree to. So at the end of the day, the decision of the Jerusalem Council doesn't rest on the best logical argument, although those are important. It doesn't reflect any one constituency's interests on its own, although those interests are considered. It's not based solely on tradition or culture, although it appeals to that. It's based on the work of the Holy Spirit in individual hearts and among a group of people gathered in the name of Jesus as they listen to each other. They look at Jesus and reflect on God's word. I want to come back to something in Peter's speech. Peter refers to God who knows the heart. In the Greek, Luke's language has a little bit different emphasis. Luke literally writes, the heart knowing God. In all our debating and in all of our deliberating, there's something key about keeping ourselves attentive to the heart knowing God. The heart knowing God knows your heart. He knows my heart. He knows the heart of the person that I disagree with most in the world. And as Christians, we believe that what we say and how we think and what we do and our motivations and all of these things are before the face of the heart-knowing God. So when we enter the council room, when we walk into the neighborhood meeting, when we wade into a discussion with a colleague or a friend or a spouse or a neighbor, we don't go alone. We go with the help of the Holy Spirit. We do it before the face of the heart-knowing God. Henry Nouwen is a Dutch Catholic priest and author in a book that he wrote 30 years ago in the name of Jesus. He writes this, I have the impression that many of the debates within the church take place primarily on a moral level. On that level, different parties do battle about right or wrong. But that battle is often removed from the experience of God's first love, which lies at the base of all human relationships. Now and goes on. Dealing with burning issues without being rooted in a deep personal relationship with God easily leads to divisiveness. Because before we know it, our sense of self is caught up in our opinion about a given subject. But when we are securely rooted in the intimacy with the source of life, it will be, it will be possible for us to remain flexible without being relativistic, gentle, and forgiving without being soft, and true witnesses without being manipulative. 
What do you think? Does the good news of the indwelling Spirit of God make a difference? Does it make such a thing as that possible? I believe it can. I believe it does. I think it's hard. But if ever we've needed grace to deal with burning issues from a place of rootedness and centeredness in a personal relationship with God, now would be a good time. If ever we've needed the humility that comes from knowing ourselves held and sustained in the presence of the source of all life, now would be good. If ever we needed tools to stay tethered to the heart of God in the midst of conflict, now would be a great time. And so as we go together as a community that's learning how to embody that with the help of God's Spirit, we become the fragrance of Christ in a world that's perishing. I'm so thankful that the Lord that we serve did not stand far away from the places of conflict. I'm so thankful that he entered the creation and took up the sin and the pain and the mess, that he lived a holy life, that he died a sinless death, that he rose again to grace us with life with him and life with each other. And now that spirit is with us, lighting our hearts with his flame so that we can represent him in all of our comings and goings. And we can do that together. His promise to be faithful, to complete the work of building his church is where we place our hope. Let's pray together. Lord, our God, you see us. You see um, the pain and the grief, the frustration, the anguish, the worry. You see each life, and yet somehow you see us all and you hold us all together. So Lord, assure us. Assure us that we don't go alone into our weeks, that we don't go alone into the challenges that we face. Help us to know that we go with you, that you lead us, and that you will never leave us on our own. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.